0: Tomorrow, we're going to get more sunshine, less chance for rain. Temperatures will break 90. I'm David Maddox for MPB.
1: From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women. The show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Karen Brown with Dr. Michelle Owens, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC, and surgical pathologist Dr. Allie Brown. Today's topic is fibroids and hysterectomies. The doctors will answer questions such as, are fibroids dangerous? Why and when are hysterectomies necessary? Plus, you can call with any general health question you might have. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women. We'll be back after news from NPR right here on MPB Think Radio.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. blood banks will soon start screening for the Zika virus. That today from the Food and Drug Administration and a major expansion of the government's efforts to keep the illness from spreading through mosquito bites or human-to-human transmission. The virus has been linked to microcephaly, a severe brain development a problem found in newborns. In Italy, the death toll from this week's earthquake has risen to 267 people. Christopher Livsace's time and aftershocks are working against rescue teams.
3: The Italian Institute of Geophysics has recorded nearly a 1,000 aftershocks since the initial quake, complicating efforts to save victims who may still be alive beneath the rubble. One large aftershock registered a magnitude of 4.8 in the town of Amatrice, where more than 200 people have already been confirmed dead. The tremor sent more buildings crashing to the ground, but no new injuries were reported. According to Italy's Civil Protection Agency, 212 survivors have been rescued from beneath the rubble. Volunteers from all over Italy are lending a hand in the relief effort. Among them, groups of migrants who recently crossed the Mediterranean Sea from Africa and the Middle East. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Livsey in Ascoli Piceno.
2: In Syria, residents and fighters have begun leaving a rebellious town after a truce with the regime. NPR's Alice Fordham reports they have been besieged for four years. The town of Dariah was one of the first to kick out security forces in Syria's 2011 uprising. That rebellion was all but crushed in 2012,
4: but a few thousand clung on. Fighters battled the forces of President Bashar al-Assad in an unequal struggle that saw them battered with airstrikes. Starving civilians lived in basements to avoid bombs. Now, the fighters have agreed to leave and go to a rebel-held area. Syrian state media say civilians can go to designated points for screening and shelter and that state institutions and families will be allowed to return. But some say they'll flee with the fighters because they fear the regime. Some people posted pictures of themselves on Facebook, kissing goodbye to revolutionary graffiti in the rubble of their town. Alice
2: Fordham, NPR News, Beirut. The Republican governor of Maine, Paul LePage, so far appears to be standing by his obscenity-laden voicemail tirade against Democratic state representative Drew Gatine, who's often clashed with the governor over various social welfare programs addressing poverty, drug addiction, and other issues. Gatine released the recording in which LePage is heard threatening the legislator for allegedly calling him a racist. I want you to prove that
5: I'm a racist. I have spent my life helping
2: black people. Gatine says he did not call LePage a, a racist, but said the governor did make racially insensitive remarks during a town hall this week. When He said the majority of drug dealing cases his office has encountered involve blacks and Latinos. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was down 47 points. This is NPR News. Nearly 5,000 nurses in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area are preparing to go on an open-ended strike Labor Day. The Minnesota Nurses Association has announced that it has filed an intent to strike notice after they were unable to reach a contract agreement with Allina because of their dispute over health insurance plans. President Obama is quadrupling the size of a marine monument in Pacific waters off Hawaii, and Pierre Scott Horsley reports the president plans to visit the area next week, celebrating the protection of an area more than twice the size of Texas. The
4: expanded national monument will be the largest protected piece of ocean in the world, spanning more than half a million square miles. That's home to whales, sea turtles, and pristine coral reefs. Former President George W. Bush created the original monument a decade ago. Obama's order will substantially enlarge the protected area, putting it off limits to commercial fishing and mineral extraction. Some fishing interests are protesting the move, but the White House says it has the backing of native Hawaiian leaders. Obama says the threat of climate change makes it more important than ever to safeguard public lands and waters, a point he'll underscore when he visits Midway Island within the monument waters next week. Scott Horsley, NPR News, the White House.
2: Vice President Joe Biden has announced more federal funding for Amtrak's Northeast Corridor, which last fiscal year carried a record 11.7 million riders. Biden scheduled a stop today at a Wilmington, Delaware, train station bearing his name to promote part of a years-long effort to bolster investment in the nation's aging rail systems, highways, and bridges. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR
3: Stations. Other contributors include Fifth Generation Incorporated, maker of Tito's Handmade Vodka, still independently owned by Tito Beverage, distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas, American-made and gluten-free. Recipes and more at titosvodka.com.
0: Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
2: I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio.
0: You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: Thanks for joining us on Southern Remedy for Women on this Friday morning. I'm Karen Brown. I'm here with Dr. Michelle Owens, Hello. who's specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC. You have a long title. And also with us, surgical pathologist, Dr. Allie Brown.
3: Not a long title. You
1: have a short title. <laughs> we're talking, we're covering
4: the long and the short
3: of it today. I need a better there title.
1: Go. There you go. All right. We're going to talk about fibroids today. Doesn't that sound like fun? But A lot of people have them or fear them. We're going to find out more about whether you should fear them. We're also talking about hysterectomies. Another thing that many women have had or are considering having, we'll find out when you should and when you shouldn't and all that good stuff. Plus, if you have a general health question, we invite you to call in. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send an email to women at mpbonline.org. dot org. Good morning, doctors. Good, Good morning. morning,
3: women <laughs> in the room. <laughs> so exciting!
1: All right. So, well, first of all, how are you both healthy?
3: Of course, healthy doing women. Great. Yeah. Hopefully so. Trying to stay that way. Indeed.
1: Where do you want to start, with fibroids or hysterectomies? Well,
4: so I kind of, I thought we could kind of talk about fibroids first and kind of segue into um, hysterectomy. And um, I think because, number one, hysterectomies are really uh, common surgeries. They're actually the most common, the second most common surgical procedure performed in women behind what, Dr. Brown? What's the most common? I'm putting you on the spot. Most common surgery performed in women. Sorry, I was posting that we're on live. So great. So check our Twitter feed. Okay. So most common surgery performed in women actually is the cesarean delivery or C section. Really? Yeah. I would not have guessed that. So C section first and then behind that hmm. is hysterectomy. So um uh, That's sort of scary. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of C sections. That's another
1: show. And those are surgeries. And those have risks involved. That's a big
4: surgery. And, you know, it's one of the things that's really interesting um, in talking with uh, my patients and getting them to understand is that there's a perception that when a surgery or a procedure is so common, uh, I think sometimes people um, can, for whatever reason, not be as aware of or not take the risks as seriously but, um, even though c sections are very commonly performed, and you know we always make efforts to have surgeries be as safe as possible um that there are always risks that are associated, and while we're not going to be talking about c sections, it's just the concept that you know delivery uh are c sections most common, and then the second most common is hysterectomy, so one where we're Cutting on the uterus in order to facilitate delivery of a baby, and then the second most common procedure being performed, surgical procedure performed in women, is taking the uterus out.
1: Is hysterectomy is a hysterectomy most associated with an older woman?
4: So, um, so when we talk about the most common, it's really among um, reproductive age women. So, um, it, but. Usually, of course, because you want to hopefully uh, give people the opportunity for childbearing, et cetera, um, it does become more common. It's much more common to see hysterectomies being performed in women who are um, in the mid to later uh, parts of their lives. Yeah.
1: And fibroids, is that for a certain Uh,
4: age group? So I think that when you have the fibroid conversation, that's kind of why I said we'll talk a little bit about fibroids, but we'll also talk about hysterectomy because um, when you think about the most common reasons that women actually undergo hysterectomy or why hysterectomy might actually be recommended um, as Definitive treatment for uterine fibroids um, is one of the main indications or one of the main reasons why uh, women undergo this procedure. So they kind of, to me, if if we can talk about what fibroids are, um, what people actually experience symptoms and those kinds of things, but when you start talking about, well, how do we manage them or what kinds of treatments are available, then that's kind of when you also have to have the Conversation about hysterectomy, but um, I recognize that there may be many uh, people in the listening audience who may have not necessarily had a hysterectomy for a fibroid or for fibroids, but they may have had hysterectomies for different reasons. And because it's so common, and it does depending on the type of hysterectomy that you've had, and depending on what things were taken out, what things were retained, et cetera, um, they have they can have a significant impact on women's life, on their perception of themselves, um, and also on lifetime risk for um, some other more common uh, health issues or problems that uh, women are at risk for. We should probably
3: define what is a hysterectomy, what are fibroids? Maybe there are some people listening that don't know what is a fibroid or um, a fireball. (laughs) Fireball. (laughs) Some people call them fireballs.
4: Yeah, so fibroids are actually, so they are tumors, but they are non-cancerous tumors. So fibroids are benign growths um, that occur within the uterus, which is the womb. Okay. Um, Now they can grow to be attached, like to where they're kind of attached or hanging on a stalk. They can grow from the inside of the uterus and kind of come through the opening of the uterus, which we call the cervix. Um, they can be embedded in the wall of the uterus. Um, so there are, they can have multiple locations Um, within the uterus, and sometimes they grow, and then they kind of, after getting their own supply, they migrate or move a little bit um, to where they are in the tissues surrounding the uterus, much more so than actually attached to the uterus itself. All right,
1: here here are my fear stories. I've heard that fibroids can be really big, and they're filled with blood, and you have to cut them up in order to get them out if you're taking them out vaginally. Is that
3: true?
4: So... So in some ways, yes. Filled I think. with blood, I think, would
3: be a... I guess sometimes they can be right. degenerated. So
4: so yes. Yeah. So usually not. So num so first I think it's really important to understand that while you can classify fibroids or these benign tumors um as um fibroids, that all fibroids are not the same. So they come in a variety of different sizes. They also can take on different shapes. Um, should I say colors too? Sizes, shapes, and colors—that's the thing. Everybody oh, in the lab, uh, you can
3: see their colors. Yes, yeah, so, and, Why? and
4: what can, color can they be? They can look different. They're under, usually white. Yeah.
3: But they they can be pink or tan.
4: Yeah, and they they are a little, they have a rubbery kind of consistency, Mm -hmm. but sometimes if they are calcified, so they can Mm -hmm. get calcium deposits in them. And so they can kind of be a little hard or um, more firm. Um, Sometimes they can be squishy if they... um, start to go through a process where they outgrow their blood supply or they have changes inside related to not having adequate blood supply, then we call it degeneration but that's just basically saying in actuality it's death of some of the tissue on the inside because the inside portion of the fibroid doesn't get a good blood supply.
1: Let me throw the phone number in cuz I imagine
4: everybody's there are questions already. Call and talk yeah. About
1: this. My fibroids are rubbery fibroids. and fibroids 1877 MPB ring. Call that number if you'd like to ask a question. 1877 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org we're talking about hysterectomies we're talking about fibroids but we'll take any questions you might have regarding your health so go ahead and call us or email us back to the womeninfibroid.org
3: Well, I think one thing to say for sure is just because you have fibroids doesn't mean you need to have surgery first of all. I think that's an important thing to mention. You can
1: live with them? Absolutely. They don't I mean, grow it's only meat. if
3: you're symptomatic, Indeed. if they're causing you problems, if you're having bleeding or, you know, some other issues.
4: So the thing that's really interesting is that we and we're talking about this because it's actually very these are common and if you look at women who reach the age of 50 about 80 percent of women uh, especially african-american women will have fibroids um and so 80 Mm percent well at least have it now and here's the thing so these little benign tumors can be present and in many people, they don't cause a problem at all. You won't even know you have them. Exactly. And so, what I tell patients, for me, when when we're doing ultrasound, is usually when we might notice it, and I'll ask, "Well, did you were you aware that you have a fibroid?" And they say, "What's that?" So that's why we're doing this today. So people already know what they are. But um, and then after I explain it to them, I'll say, well, you know, has anybody ever told you that you had this before? And most people say, no, I didn't know. And I'll ask, well, do you have any problems? And they're like, no, I'm not really having any problems. And they ask me, they say, well, what should I do about it? And my answer to them is if it's not bothering you, it doesn't <laughs> bother me. and Because they are benign and. In the absence of any symptoms, you know, if it's not really bothering you, it doesn't pose an immediate health risk or threat. So there's not, at that point, anything that necessarily has to be done. It really just depends on um, what you plan to do with your uterus, so to speak, um, because there are, they can impact or have an effect on pregnancy. Um, if they are present, they can grow. And they usually grow under stimulation from hormones. So we know women have hormonal fluctuations that occur on basically a monthly basis. And so that can actually help to encourage um, the growth of, uh, of fibroids. But in, in the very beginning, um, if you don't have any symptoms, the fact that they are present by themselves um, doesn't necessarily necessitate any particular action.
1: We need to take our first break. And Gloria and Bethany waiting to uh, talk to us from the phones. Just hang on. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women. We'll be right back.
3: Support for MPB comes from Grammy Museum, Mississippi, providing learning experiences on all forms of music.
4: Educator resources online and museum tours for grades K through 12 are available. Information at education@grammymuseumms.org. At
0: This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: We are back on Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens, Dr. Allie Brown. We're talking about hysterectomies and fibroids, but we welcome your questions uh, on any subject today. And Gloria is calling in from Greenville. Gloria, thank you for your patience. Go ahead. Hi. Well, Good morning. I was
5: wondering, uh, 30 years ago, I had a hysterectomy.
1: I had fibromyalgia.
5: I had one... One year it was like big as cocaine. The next year, big as orange. So they said, "Let's do away with this." You have two kids. I was very young, and I need to know. I don't. I've not had like a female examination since that's happened. And when I bring it up, my doctor just looks at me like, "Well, there's nothing there." I don't understand.
4: So. so I think that, Gloria, you ha- that is a great question um, because there are lots of women just like yourself who have experienced a hysterectomy, and um, the recommendations for what next really depends upon what type of hysterectomy that you had. And so... When Complete. So when a hysterectomy is performed, and I'm glad that you know that because there are actually lots of women who undergo hysterectomy, and by hysterectomy we mean just removal of the uterus. I mean,
5: through the change of life, I mean, early. So,
4: so that's wonderful. So when you tell me that, then that also explains to me that you, in addition to having your uterus taken out, that they also took out your ovaries because if the ovaries are removed, then you basically undergo what is like a surgical menopause because we've taken out now the source of your estrogen. And
5: and, years ago, they didn't have medications like they have now.
4: Absolutely. And so, and I'm sure, especially for a woman who's very young um, to undergo that it, is, it can be very difficult. Um, so now, fortunately, there are options that are available for women in the event that they have to have their ovaries removed. Now, another thing that's a little different than it might have been when you had your, uh, your surgery 35 years ago, there's, we recognize that women can have surgical menopause, and so there's more of a thoughtfulness about leaving the ovaries So, if there's nothing wrong with the ovaries and the problem is uterine, whether it's bleeding or fibroids or what have you, then the idea is well, if the ovaries are fine and they're not causing problems and the patient's not struggling with pain or endometriosis or some of the other things. Then well, that's we can, what I
5: had was endometriosis. Yes. And it
4: was passed down to my daughter. Well, endometriosis can run in families, so it's not uncommon for women my who have... My grandmother died from it. She was like 32 years old. Wow. Um, yeah. So when, when women... So with endometriosis, and that's why I said the reason why you have your uterus taken out kind of will tell you what needs to be done and it also kind of lets us know about what things you're at risk for so because you had endometriosis which is uh, a a condition which can be very painful um, (laughs) where you have um, the lining of the uterus is located in other places outside of the uterus and so it can end up outside into in in the abdomen or in other places in the body and it can hard. be very painful. So for you that hysterectomy what they did was they gave you what what is considered total complete therapy for endometriosis and they took out the uterus and they took out both ovaries because in order to make sure that that extra tissue doesn't continue to cause you problems and pain they have to take out that source of estrogen and so, so that's I don't have to have an exam anymore ever so so because so after having had a full hysterectomy and because you no longer have a um you no longer have your ovaries, then you are at exceptionally low risk for any other complications related to your Mm -hmm. GYN system. And so that's kind of why I think Your physician has basically said that you are a person who is in a very unique category and you don't really require additional um, GYN exams per se. Now, it is important for you to continue to see a physician on a regular basis because there are other things that can happen. Um, that you still need to continue to be screened for, but because you've had your cervix removed, your ovaries removed, and your uterus removed, the risk of you having a GYN-type cancer has uh, been substantially decreased almost to nothing um, because those parts are not there and they haven't been there for decades. And when
5: they cut me to do the C-section, they cut me up and down. And are those muscles gone now? Is that...
4: So your muscles don't go away, um, and as a person who has, has had twins in my belly, I can tell you they don't go away, but they can sure as heck be hard to find. I'm
5: um, telling because <laughs> they're hanging down, and I'm yeah. like, what is this? So, I'm if they cut me that way, that,
4: well, so now they but,
5: go side to side. Yeah,
4: but cutting you up and down doesn't really impact your muscular development, um, but it does sometimes, when you've had big abdominal surgery, make it a little harder for you to uh, get your six-pack back.
1: Gloria, we have to move on, but we thank you so much. So much for your phone call, Bethany. We thank great. you for your patience. You're calling from St. Martin, right down there on the Gulf Coast. How are the Gulf breezes today?
3: Actually, it's pretty nice.
1: Yeah,
5: it's, uh, it's always it's nice on the Gulf Coast. Right <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: what's nice your question?
5: Too. Um, yes, I actually have fibroids. I I didn't even know I did. I just knew I had some really irregular bleeding, and I was talking to my doctor, and we were going through all the options, and she suggested that I do a hysterectomy by uh, robotics. So they leave my ovaries. And um, I'm actually very curious for like the, after I have hysterectomy, uh, will I still be able to enjoy intercourse with my husband? <laughs> after I mean obviously it'll be six weeks or whatever.
4: Bethany, fantastic question. Kudos to you for asking it. Um, so there are a couple of uh, things to consider. And I do want to bring out one point for our listening audience. Um, So you said that the reason that uh, you are having um, a hysterectomy performed is going to be based on irregular bleeding. And so one of the very heavy irregular bleeding. Yes. So one of the one of the second most common or one of the more common uh, reasons why women undergo hysterectomy are also um, irregularities related to abnormal bleeding and so we were talking about fibroids in one case we talked about endometriosis we're hitting kind of all of the reasons why women are usually recommended or it's suggested that they undergo a hysterectomy and irregular bleeding is definitely one of them especially if it's very uh, heavy and you need transfusions Um, the robotic hysterectomy is just one way that it's done you Think of robot. It's not like a robot from like I Dream of Genie kind of robot,
0: but um, it's
4: a very uh, it's a it's a minimally invasive or um, a procedure that doesn't require you to have a huge incision on your belly. But there are small ports that are used to allow the robot to be under the control of your operating physician or your surgeon. And they will actually not stand over the abdomen, but they use cameras and the robotic arms to be able to perform the hysterectomy. Um, They are leaving your ovaries which is is fantastic. Some women who are undergoing hysterectomy would like to have their cervix retained. Um, Some people believe that that helps them to continue to enjoy sexual intercourse, as you mentioned. Um, And for other people, uh, they have continued to have very um, exciting and fulfilling sexual lives with everything removed. Um, The thing that's going to make the difference is, A, you still have your ovaries, so you'll still have estrogen, and that will continue to allow your vagina to remain moist and for you to undergo sexual excitement or stimulation, so that part's good. Um, and for some women who have to have their ovaries replaced, then, or I'm sorry, have their ovaries removed, then that actually becomes more of an issue or a concern. But after you undergo your recovery, uh, you very much still should be able to enjoy sexual intercourse and having your ovaries in while you are still of reproductive age is a very important part of that. Um, for for women, as I said, who, who unfortunately have to, for whatever reason, have their ovaries removed, that can be far more challenging.
1: All right, Bethany, we wish you the best. Absolutely. Thank you so much for calling. Best
4: of luck to you.
1: Thank now, you. we had a caller who couldn't stay on the line, and I've given this question to Dr. Brown because I think it's probably right up your alley. Oh. I did
4: not
3: no pun that was, intended. That oh, was very, the crowd is going that wild outside the studio, guys.
4: very punny, Karen. Very Her name punny. Is Dr. Allie Brown.
3: Okay, so the question <laughs> is, if you do a scan to determine if a person has fibroid tumors, how can you tell if they are benign or cancer? And my answer would be, you can't, definitively, right? Correct. However, there are some things that would lead you to think, favor
4: more of something benign than malignant. Right, and the other thing is that, for the most part, fibroids are benign tumors. So there is a specific subtype of cancer that can occur in the uterus that is called a sarcoma. And the sarcoma is basically a general term because you can have sarcomas all over your body. Um, But specifically, the sarcomas that occur in the uterus, there's one subtype that is associated with these fibroid tumors. And they're called, and here's the big term, lyomyosarcoma. We won't make anybody spell that, and you don't have to say it 10 times fast. But lyomyosarcomas. And these are exceptionally rare cancers, um, and, but they are associated with uh, fibroids. So we don't really understand if this is a process because sarcoma just means soft tissue cancer. Um, and fibroids are considered soft tissue as well. So we don't really know or understand if something happens in the fibroid that actually makes it become cancer. But what we believe is that that is not what happens. And everywhere you read, it says rarely, if ever, does that happen. So what I think it's important for people to glean from this conversation about fibroids, but I still think is very important, is that fibroids are benign tumors. Fibroids are not leiomyosarcomas. Leiomyosarcomas are a separate entity, a separate, um, a separate beast, if you will, from a fibroid. A fibroid is not a leiomyosarcoma. A leiomyosarcoma is not a fibroid.
3: Yeah, to have a fibroid and to worry that it's going to turn into something worse, that really doesn't happen. That's not what what we think of happening. And also, fibroids are commonly multiple, so you often women will have more than one. Whereas the malignant tumor, the bad guy, the leiomyosarcoma, usually is a single mass. So uh, usually they grow much faster. Um, they can be very necrotic, although some fibroids, as we talked about, can mm-hmm. be kind of dead on the inside or necrotic and, and things like that. But really, if if there are things that would concern your gynecologist, and Michelle can uh, speak to this more, to where that would have to be removed, ultimately the pathologist would evaluate the tumor to tell whether or not it is benign or malignant.
4: And I think that's a really good way to to help people in the listening audience and patients in general kind of understand how we work together as healthcare teams and how, you know, so your gynecologist or your surgeon um, takes out the specimen, does your surgery, but how we depend upon our pathology colleagues to look at those specimens and to, to determine if, A, what we got was what we thought we had. Um, if it's not, then what is it? And like, what's the extent of it? And so when you're talking about both things that we assume to be benign and those things that we are concerned about being malignant or cancer, um, it's really important. Like, that's not something that we just figure out on our own. It actually really takes additional colleagues with special training to be able to help determine that.
1: We need to take our second break of the hour. If you want to call us, please do it. 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. Or if you prefer, send us an email, women at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio.
0: The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Is college too late to teach sex ed? My parents were
4: too uncomfortable to talk about it so we never talked about it in arkansas a new law requires colleges to help prevent unplanned pregnancy there's this 18 and 19 year old brain thing that's magical thinking sort of like it's not going to happen to me
0: that story later on all things considered from npr news today at four on npb think radio This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: We're back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens, Dr. Allie Brown. We're talking today about hysterectomies and fibroids, but we'll take your general questions as well. The number to call, 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. You can also send an email to women at mpbonline.org. Where did we leave off?
3: Well, I wanted to ask Dr. Owens a question because it's something kind of the, the converse of what Gloria had asked, I think, uh, when she called. So we talked about when women have a hysterectomy and they have their cervix and their uterus and their ovaries and everything removed, how that might mean that the, you don't have to have any sort of female exam anymore. However, I think a lot of women maybe don't either don't know what was removed; they're not they're unsure. Right. And I'm sure there are also some indications when women still should go and have an exam every year, even though they've had a hysterectomy. So,
4: could you talk about that, doctor? Sure. So, so the concept I think is that um, you know we have not yet made recommendations that people don't need exams. Um, however, there. Is a lot of discussion and has been, and we've seen recent changes in guidelines about the frequency of testing for for people um, and what kind of issues that they may have going on that would lead them to need certain types of tests. So I think the biggest thing that we are concerned about, I think first would be the fact that uh, cervical cancer screening, because when people think about exams, really what people say usually is not, Hey, I'm going to go get my exam. They usually say I'm going to get my pap smear. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and so uh, as well, as they might think that's all there is happening. Absolutely. And so, um, so the pap smear is actually a screen for cervical cancer. If you have not had a history of abnormal pap smears etc. There are some certain there are certain medical conditions though that also would increase risk for cervical cancer. So specific populations, people who are immunocompromised people who have HIV disease um, are at an increased risk and so we worry much more about them developing cervical cancer but if you don't have a history of abnormal pap smears and they take out your uterus and take out your cervix then you don't have to continue to have pap smears. Now, that is an actual test, right? The pap test. And that's where we put the speculum in and they take those brushes and they scrape some cells off of the cervix. So if you don't have a cervix anymore, it would stand to reason that your risk for cervical cancer goes away for the most part. Um, So for those women who don't have histories of abnormal pap smears, who have a hysterectomy, you don't have to continue to get pap testing. Um, the recommendations are that you continue if you have a cervix then. And so some women have hysterectomies or removal of the uterus, but they leave the opening of the uterus or the, the lower most part of the uterus will be left inside. And just as I alluded to earlier, some people believe that that helps with support of the vagina. And some people believe that it actually helps to preserve, um, sexual enjoyment, um, And so there are different attitudes and perceptions about that, um, but those are some of the reasons why women consider it. So if you still have your cervix, then there's still a risk that you could develop cervical cancer, and so there needs to be screening in those women, and what we recommend is that they undergo the routine um, cervical screening per the recommendations, but once you get to 65, you get a reward. So at 65, if everything's been fine, no abnormalities. A gold then, star for you. Then you graduate <laughs> from the pap smear at 65. All right,
1: Going back to the phones, Linda's calling in from somewhere in Mississippi. Linda, go ahead. I guess i want to ask a question. I'm
5: in my 50s. I've always had my pap smears. I've always come back normal. But I do have a bad history as far as my mom and my sister of all having cancer and stuff. Um, and right now, I'm going through menopause, I'm going through hot flashes and all that, and I have been having extreme severe cramping. I, n- I no longer have any bleeding because I did the, I think, ablation, mm-hmm. and that stopped the bleeding. But the cramping is, I can't even deal with it anymore. Um, he could be, uh, he did a depo shot. He's trying to, I think he said something about getting my body, thinking that it's going to go past a certain level. And he's trying to avoid a hysterectomy, and I don't understand why. I mean... I know, I guess you always want to avoid surgeries, but I don't quite understand why we're avoiding hysterectomy because this is, um, I can't hardly deal with all this cramping.
4: So, um, so Linda, I think uh, one of the things that's really uh, to kind of come out of this, and I, I love the way that you articulated that, just saying you just don't understand. So the concept of moving toward hysterectomy, mm-hmm. uh, I think there was a time when people probably were much more aggressive. And felt like, oh, well, we'll just go in and take it out. And then we realized that there were some negative effects because, again, these are major surgeries and there are risks that are involved. And so when you have to consider the risks of surgery, I think now what what most physicians do, even those of us who are surgeons, um, we want to make sure that we have... That we consider surgery only when surgery is absolutely necessary and kind of as the last resort as opposed to mm-hmm. the first one. Now, there are okay. some instances in which um, urgently surgical treatment in, in, in an emergency situation is is the most appropriate thing okay. um, but for a person who and, and I think it's really important for you to continue to share with your physician how much this is impacting your quality of life, because as a physician who is listening to a patient, we hear women talk about discomfort and cramping all the time. And mm, yeah. and so, so for some people, it is just an, a nuisance. But it sounds like for you that it actually is a little bit more debilitating. And so I think when considering whether or not surgery is the best option for you, I think that for your doctor to hear how it impacts your daily life and Mm -hmm. how difficult this is for you, that actually might provide a much more compelling argument and a stronger reason for your physician to consider um, taking care of this surgically as opposed to trying some of the more conservative modalities but typically most physicians will try to give women some other tempering process or try to manage it without surgery rather than taking it to the OR the first chance we get so we, especially understanding when it's pain related, Mm -hmm. pain in the pelvis, that achy crampy kind of pain that Mm -hmm. you are describing, sometimes surgery doesn't take it away and so I think we would all feel horrible if you have the expectation that this surgery is going to fix it and then (laughs) after that you continue to have the same problem and on top of it now you've had a major surgery yeah
5: well I've been keeping I'm going to see him in two weeks so I decided to start keeping a log of like my pain from one to ten and then I I try to deal with ibuprofen Mm -hmm. but In in some instances, like if I know that I've got a situation coming up where I cannot be in pain, I'll go ahead and take a hydrocodone. But I always – I write – I'm keeping a log of like when I take ibuprofen and when I take hydrocodone and when and how much the pain is. And so I thought – That would help if I showed him that. I mean, I don't know if this is normal, if this is what he's expecting me to go through, or if this is abnormal. So So I thought maybe that would help.
4: Well, yeah, and you know what? I think that what you just said is that is brilliant. Like, that is a wonderful thing for a patient to do, to help give the physician who is not living your day-to-day life, a real inside look at okay. what that means for you. So I think that is perfect. And you probably have kind of already exceeded expectations from a patient okay. standpoint <laughs> because well, that's going to be meaningful for him or her. My
5: husband says, what happens, I go to the doctor and I'm feeling great when I go to the doctor, so I kind of blow off my pain. I'm like, oh, I'm good. And, <laughs> and he's like, "You no, you know, last week we <laughs> doubled over crying. You weren't good, you
4: know. So absolutely. Well, Linda, we wish
1: okay. you the best. Thank yeah, you so much absolutely. for calling Thanks in.
4: Thanks so much. Well, thank you. <laughs>
1: All right, we're going to take a break. We'll take a break now. Dexter, we're going to get to your question as soon as we come back. If you want to call us, this is our last break, so you you have a shorter time period to get your question in at 1 877 MPB ring 1 877 672 7464. Or you can still send an email to women at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back.
4: Print impaired. MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated
3: team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301.
0: MPB is getting its very own car tag. But first, we need your help. To begin production, we need 300 of you to say yes to the tag. Go to mpbonline.org slash car tag for more information and also to sign up. A portion of the fee goes to help MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. Thanks for your help, and we'll see you on the road. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: Talking about hysterectomies and fibroids today on Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Allie Brown, and we're going right to the phones and saying good morning to Dexter, calling from somewhere in Mississippi. Dexter, go ahead.
0: Yes, my question is uh, my old lady, my girlfriend had a hysterectomy about a year and a half ago, and it's changed her sex drive.
5: You know, I don't know what happened. And uh, I want to know can a woman still have an orgasm, and
0: how do it affect her sex life?
4: So Dexter, the, um, so all hysterectomies don't affect women the same. And, um, I think that it's really important to have the conversation with your physician in advance about those kinds of things, um, and the expectations. So, um, sometimes if women have their ovaries removed, um, then having a hysterectomy can influence their libido or their sex drive. Um, and it sounds like that's what you are describing, um, there are some uh, medications and other things that could be utilized if she's having difficulty with sex drive and um, and sexual arousal. Um, there are also, uh, sometimes, it, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy sex, even if you're having difficulty with libido, but I do believe that as a couple, you just kind of have to be very deliberate about it. And so... Because when women undergo this surgery, it is extremely taxing on their bodies. And so it does take a while for, uh, even though you can walk up and down steps, you can drive, you can get up and move around and do things. um, It still sometimes takes a while for them to get fully back to baseline and to feel like themselves. Um, And additionally... There are some other unintended consequences about the way that a woman even views herself um, after having a hysterectomy. She no longer has reproductive capacity. Um, And so a lot of times women feel less like a woman. I've had women say after they had their hysterectomy that they struggled with feelings of doubt about being as feminine and as desirable once they lost their uterus. Um, So all of those things can contribute. I think it's really important to be open about it and for you as the the significant other to be supportive to her and to let her know that she is still desirable and that you do still want her and um, and also to kind of help out in increasing um, her her desire and her drive, because sometimes uh, your your mind may not think you want it, but with the right kinds of motivation, your body can very easily be persuaded. So um, I think sometimes just as as couples, that's just, it can be a little bump in the road. This doesn't have to be a big chasm that separates you or drives you apart in your relationship, but it's just something that you guys can approach together and try to just kind of rediscover. But as far as being able to, experience an orgasm there is nothing that is removed in a hysterectomy that takes away a woman's ability to achieve an orgasm so if she was able to do it before she should be able to do it now and it just might take a little extra work
1: thank you Dexter now we're going to go to Sherry calling from Pascagoula hi Sherry
4: hi what's your question
2: Um, my question is if you have a prolapsed uterus, do you have to have a does it require hysterectomy?
4: So, um, first of all, just to kind of let people know what we mean when we talk about prolapse, um, there are there are ligaments and muscles in a woman's pelvis that help to support the uterus and the bladder and even to provide some support to the rectum. And so when, if you have problems with muscles or tears or with relaxation, um, and sometimes with having multiple children, things can start to go in the direction of gravity. And so as they start to, as as that support starts to weaken, um, or those muscles get tired or fatigued, or if they're not kept nice and strong, then you can see... um, things that are basically inside the vagina start to come out or to bulge. And so that's what is meant by prolapse. Um, while So it's very difficult to um, provide su- support to a uterus um, after the prolapse has gotten to a certain point. But hysterectomy, while it's one of the options for prolapse, it is not the only option. So we have um, devices that are called pessaries, that's P-E-S-S-A-R-I-E-S, pessaries, and they actually are um, objects that can be inserted into the vagina that can support or help to uh, prop up those things that are going in the way of gravity. So um, I think if you are experiencing prolapse, that it's important that you are evaluated by a physician and uh, urogynecologists Um, are specialists in uh, OBGYN who deal with issues related to prolapse and there are some if you don't have a urogynecologist in your area then a general OBGYN might be able to assist you or even a urologist um, could kind of help to give you some direction about non-surgical options based on the type of prolapse you have that might be able to positively influence your symptoms.
1: All right. Thank you very much for your call, Sherry. Thank you. We we have Karen calling from Sharon, and I just looked up where Sharon is. It's a very small community. You're in Madison County, right? Right. Karen from Sharon. Yeah. Awesome. Go ahead, Karen. From Sharon. I I had a total hysterectomy
5: back in the early eights, and I have been on Primerin ever since. And if I get off of the Premierin, I'm extremely nervous. Does, do my, does my body actually need the Premarin for estrogen,
4: or am I just addicted to the Premarin? So Premarin is not actually um, an addictive drug. However, that is a form of hormone replacement therapy. And so what it does is when you have had a hysterectomy where your ovaries have been removed, earlier in the show, we talked about this surgical menopause. So you take out the ovaries and all of a sudden the woman's source for estrogen is gone. And so when you remove that, if you don't find a way to supplement that estrogen, whether it's by patch or by pill, like the Premarin, then you will experience the symptoms of menopause. Now, symptoms of menopause, people know about the hot flashes, the difficulty with concentration, sleep uh, disturbances, problems with vaginal dryness, and and those kinds of things. Um, You may one of the other things that women complain about as they are going through the change of life or once they enter menopause is difficulty with concentrating. And so it may be that what you are experiencing when you stop that Premarin is at least the beginning of those types of menopausal symptoms. So if you come off the Premarin altogether then, yes, you will start to experience those symptoms of menopause. As long as you are taking a small amount of that medication, it will kind of be protective because your body has estrogen floating around that it otherwise would not have. So it's not that you're addicted to the Premarin, but the Premarin definitely has certain effects on your body that it allows you to maintain. And once you take away that Premarin, then you will definitely see the effects of that medication no longer being present. Well, you
5: have just described exactly what happens to me every time I try not to take it, and I have just decided I can't live without it, so I'll continue
4: to take it. There are, there are many women who, when given the opportunity to make the choice about whether or not they want to come off of their hormones, recognize that for them, the benefits of to their everyday life of staying on that medication and the way that it makes them feel and how it allows them to function, they don't feel like making the sacrifice of coming off of it. Thank you so much, Karen. Absolutely.
1: We have, thank you. We have just a little more than a minute left and I wanted to ask, you mentioned that some women feel that they're not as feminine when they have a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. Is that completely a psychological effect or physically do things happen that make you feel less like a woman?
4: Well, you know that's it's really difficult to answer. I think that the answer for that question is probably different for every woman um, because I think that, you know, for each one of us, we all have our own perceptions about those things that make us feel like a woman and what that actually really means. Like what makes me feel like a woman may be different than what you or Dr. Brown may feel makes you feel like a woman. And even our perceptions about what being a woman really means could be very different. Just sitting around this table, let alone in our, in our listening audience. Um, But so again, depending on what happens, so does the cervix come out does it stay in for some women that matters for some women it doesn't do the ovaries come out do the ovaries stay in um it definitely will make a difference from a physiologic standpoint the way that the body works so from that standpoint it can make a difference um but for some women for example who have already gone through the change of life it really may not and for some women who have been miserable or really struggling day-to-day with uh, different kinds of medical problems, a hysterectomy may provide them with the relief to actually feel like they've regained their life. So I think that it's going to be different for everyone because we are just all wonderful, complex individuals. What a great ending.
1: Makes me feel like a natural woman.
4: Oh, we Carol should go King. out to that. You make All me right. feel like a natural, net- little Aretha Franklin for the listening audience. Uh, Carol
1: King. Carol. Oh yeah, it's, uh, Aretha did, did it, but Carol King like wrote a metro woman. it. All right, we're done. <laughs> "Sudden Remedy for Women" is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. It's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show is engineered by Jay White, our call screener, Liz Gill. For Dr. Michelle Owens, for Dr. Allie Brown, I'm Karen Brown. Join us next Friday at 11 for the next Southern Remedy for Women. And stay tuned because NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio.
0: This forecast is underwritten by Blue